Paris is not only the city of light, love and culture, but it's also the home of the biggest interventional cardiology meeting, Paris course on revascularization or PCR. Last week the meeting was back in person after two years of COVID-imposed virtual attendance. 8,000 attendees inside the Palais de Congrès, tens of sessions, live cases and industry stands. This version of Euro PCR celebrates 30 years of radial cath and 20 years of transcatheter aortic valve interventions, TAVI. I had the chance to attend, meet the experts and present my cases. And I'm here bringing to the CardiBuzz audience who couldn't make it to the conference the hot topics and the late-breaking clinical trials from Paris. Cardio Buzz is your weekly show for cardiology news, reviews, conference coverage, and interviews with experts. Cardio Buzz is on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I am Hussein Hishmat, Professor of Cardiology and Interventional Cardiologist, and welcome to this episode of Cardio Buzz. Out of four days packed with trials, live cases, and new products, I will present seven of the most relevant gadgets and studies that I think can change the way we do cardiac cath in the future. They are best called the cath lab of tomorrow. So let's start. Number seven robots invade the cath lab. When we hear the word robot, what comes to our minds is those human-like metallic bodies with shuffling legs and arms, walking around either entertaining humans or killing humans as in the Terminator movie. In reality, robots are computers connected to mechanical platforms that can outperform the capacity of humans when it comes to speed, precision, or stamina. In EuroPCR, robotic angioplasty was presented as a live case in the main arena. The operator was not in the cath lab room, but he was outside the room, in front of the control box. He was controlling the procedure, advancing wires, balloons, and positioning stents with a joystick. Only the nurse scrubbed with the patient inside the room to feed the machine with the supplies and take them out. This technology promises not only to cut radiation exposure to the doctors, reduce their physical strain and spine problems from standing and wearing heavy lead aprons, but also to improve the precision because the computer can control stand positioning in one millimeter accuracy. Also, procedures in underserved areas can be done theoretically by an experienced physician remotely. However, the system has limitations. It cancels any tactile feeling by the doctor's hands, and this can be quite dangerous and can lead to dissections. It can only control two wires, and it is limited in the size of the guide catheter. And of course, the cost is another story. In my opinion, this technology will stay, and maybe in the future we'll see it coming to more complex interventions, not only for simple procedure. Number six, simulate before you operate. The last thing we want while operating inside the cat lab is a surprise that we were not prepared for. 
It would be great if we practiced the procedure before we started. How can we do that with simulation? And this has gone really far. Now the patient's images from angiography or CT scan can be loaded into the computer software and the software will simulate the patient's vessels and valves. Then we can do the procedure several times on screen, plan at ease, prepare for any troubleshooting, and come up beforehand with solutions. This technology has been available to give trainees a sense of the procedure that they are not familiar with. In the conference, there was a booth for companies that can 3D print the individual's unique anatomy of a patient who needs an aortic valve implantation. So with virtual reality, avatars of remote proctors and holograms, in addition, you will also get the tactile feeling of the patient's aorta, brachiocephalic vessels, femoral artery, aortic valve, without touching the patient and before doing the procedure. And if this goes into the coronary arena as well, it will make cardiac cath procedures even safer and easier. Number five, leaving nothing behind. How many times did your patient after implanting the stent come to you worried because of the foreign body in his coronary? Fixing the stenosis without a permanent implant is always welcome, provided it's durable and does not fail with time. Drug-coated balloons dilate the lesion and deliver that drug without leaving a permanent scaffold inside. When used properly in the right situation, they can provide results that are similar or even better than stents. I am personally a regular user of these balloons since 2014, and I must admit that their outcome is great. In EuroPCR, several registries have been presented with different balloon brands. We have now, in addition to the good old sequin please of Paclitaxel, several serolimus-based solutions like Magic Touch and Solution. The studies coming from Europe and from Asia on the two serolimus-based coated balloons showed excellent success rates similar to those seen with the best drug-eluting stents. I personally expect the future to have fewer stents and more zero-footprint solutions like drug-coated balloons. Tell me in the comments, what do you think of drug-coated balloons? Do you insist on a stent or you can use drug-coated balloons in some situations? Number four, fewer wires in, more data out. We know that by measuring coronary flow and pressures, FFR, we can diagnose which lesion needs treatment and how effective was our treatment in regaining normal vessel flow. Traditionally, we used to do it invasively by placing a sensor wire inside the coronary and measuring the pressure distal and proximal to the lesion. But these wires are not very steerable, they need calibration, and they add time and excess cost to the procedure. Now we have a less invasive alternative. Instead of FFR, we have QFR. It's a software that analyzes the angiographic images taken inside the cath lab. They utilize the images and the frames to calculate the pressure without having a wire inside, just from the images and the video loops. The software also calculates the length of the lesion the significance of each individual lesion and helps to predict the expected improvement with fixing that lesion. This technology is now mature. It has been benchmarked against wire-based FFR 
Studies coming from the Far East and Europe showed that QFR was superior to ordinary angiography. It changed the decision in one quarter of cases, and surprisingly most of the change was towards less stent implantations. I'm personally starting to use this tool and I found it very useful when the wire-based solutions were not available or when we were short of time. I expect a good future for QFR personally. So write down your opinion in the comments. What do you think of this technology and its utilization? Number 3. How long will the valve live? Transcatheter aortic valve replacement TAVR or TAVI is now the standard for many patients with severe aortic stenosis. This therapy is less invasive and suits the elderly frail and the high surgical risk patients. However, we thought of durability as an issue for TAVR because the patient may need another replacement within a few years down the line. This year, EuroPCR was celebrating 20 years of TAVR. I enjoyed the discussions about TAVR versus SAVR, SAVR is surgical aortic valve replacement. And I'm glad that we're moving away from turf wars into teamwork. Cardiologists and cardiac surgeons are working together for each individual patient to decide the best option, whether this is a first implant or a redo implantation. The published data show comparable durability of TAVR and SAVR, with even slight superiority for the TAVR valves. We're seeing more valves coming to the arena with improved coronary axis with commissural alignment, less conduction defect with cusp overlap techniques, and more options for the repeat procedures valve involved, whether the first valve was a surgical valve or a percutaneous valve. We expect the future to be more of TAVR versus SEVER, but with surgeons working inside the cath lab, not only in the operating room. Number two, snuff boxers punched in the disco. I do 80% of my cath procedures from the radial, from the wrist, and 20% from the femoral, from the groin. Radial access is associated with less bleeding, more convenience, and even less mortality. In the last few years, I moved from the standard radial, which is from the wrist, to the distal radial access from the snuff box. I find it more convenient for the patients who can move the wrist and use the hand shortly after the procedure. It's also easier for nurses to compress and it's associated with less radial artery occlusion than proximal wrist axis, at least that's what we thought. In EuroPCR, the DISCO radial trial was presented. That was a multi-center trial of 1300 patients who were randomized to proximal versus distal radial axis, wrist versus snuffbox. The study found 0.3% radial occlusion with snuffbox versus 0.9% occlusion with the standard wrist axis. Although the numbers are less and better with the distal radial, the difference was not statistically significant. This could be due to the low rates of occlusion in the proximal radial and the high experience of operators in patent hemostasis that prevents radial occlusion. To me, this can slightly temper down the enthusiasm for snuff boxers, including myself, but honestly, I will still use it for patients' convenience and for nurses' relief.
Share your opinion in the comments. What do you think of radial axis in general and of distal radial in particular? Number 1. A patch to stop bleeding. Still in the axis domain, and because EuroPCR was celebrating 30 years radial axis, I chose this as number 1 because it touches doctors, nurses, and patients. Radial axis hemostasis is important for everyone, and there is no clear agreement on what is the best compression modality or duration. In EuroPCR, a study from the UK was presented, and that study randomized 2,400 patients with radial puncture to three compression modalities. Conventional dressing using the TR band compression for two hours, conventional dressing with one hour TR band compression, and hemostatic dressing the STAT seal with only one hour TR band compression. STAT seal is a sterile absorbent and bioocclusive dressing. It has a hydrophilic polymer that dehydrates blood and absorbs exudate, stacking up blood solids beneath to form a seal. It also has some potassium ferrate that agglomerates the solids and proteins together, adhering the seal to the wound to stop bleeding and oozing. It's applied before the sheath removal with the TR band on top. The dressing should ideally remain in place for one to three days. The primary outcome of the trial was failure of compression, and it occurred in 62% with a one-hour compression, 50% with two-hour compression, and only 5.2% with a one-hour stat seal compression. Honestly, I haven't tried this stat seal before, but I expect it to make radial procedures simpler, easier for the nurses, allowing earlier discharge, faster turnover of patients, and lower hospital costs, because you can achieve hemostasis just with one hour of compression. There are other similar solutions that can be used, not only in the radial, but also in the femoral punctures, I'm posting a link to the manufacturer and to similar trials that were published in Jack Interventions recently. That was all for this week. Thank you for watching this episode. If you like the content, hit the like button, check the links in the description, subscribe to the channel, browse previous episodes, and activate the bell to get notified with coming episodes. See you next week.